Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, new research reveals historically redlined neighborhoods are exposed to dangerous air pollution levels. Laura McCullough and Leah Mobotter from Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health will join us to discuss. Also this hour, The Southernization of America. A new book of essays explores how the South still influences culture and politics for the rest of the nation. So I'll be in conversation with authors Cynthia Tucker and Fry Gilliard. All that coming up. But first this, today marks two weeks left this legislative session for the Georgia General Assembly. WAB politics reporter Raul Bali says education bills will continue to be at the forefront. The House Education Committee will look at a bill backed by Governor Brian Kemp that lets public schools have mask mandates, but parents would be able to opt out. There's also a bill to allow people to sue a school system if they're thrown out of a school board meeting for anything other than disrupting the meeting. On the Senate side, that education committee is looking at a bill to protect the teaching certificate of teachers whose performance is rated as needs development. It's aimed to help the high turnover with new teachers. The license of a teacher rated unsatisfactory or ineffective would still be in jeopardy. The legislative session wraps up two weeks from today. Raul Bally, WABE News. And within these two weeks to go in the General Assembly, a major mental health reform package is reaching a critical point. Susanna Capaluto reports advocates are uniting to push for passage of the legislation. The major overhaul of Georgia's mental health system easily passed the State House as it has the support of the powerful House Speaker. But now it's in the State Senate, which has fewer members to influence, just 56. One issue in the bill getting pushback there is how far parity should go, where mental health must be treated the same as other health issues. So insurance companies have a big stake here. Advocates like Jeff Breedlove with the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse told senators at the state capitol recently that they have a choice. It's a time of choosing for Georgia families and peers that we get the services that we need and the services we deserve, or it's a time to say, you know, parity hasn't been enforced for 14 years and we'll wait till next year. We cannot wait anymore. Georgia's mental health advocacy groups told their members to contact state senators and push for parity. Georgia currently ranks last in the country for access to mental health services. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. And finally, all hell 19-year-olds, at least when it comes to driving, well, professionally that is, Georgia teenagers are continuing to have success in NASCAR's truck series. Now, during the busy weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway, 19-year-old Corey Heim from Marietta won the race Saturday. It marks back-to-back wins for 19-year-olds from Georgia as Chandler Smith won the the last race in Las Vegas. Now, here's Heim after the race on Fox Sports 1 with Jamie Howe. Corey Heim now has the helmet off. He celebrated with the fans for just a moment. 
Corey, you've been coming here since you were a kid to win at Atlanta Motor Speedway. How did you put your head down and trust your team behind you? Yeah, that was awesome. I can't believe it. Um, we just put ourselves in the right place at the right time. It was awesome. Now, Chandler Smith finished fourth at Atlanta, but still leads the overall championship standings. So what were you doing at the age of 19? This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's what we know. Decisions made decades ago can definitely have an impact on present day. We know this, right? History says that. Now, consider the relationship between discriminatory housing practices and public health. And you may think there's a correlation there. Oh, yes, there is. In the 1930s, the federal government graded American neighborhoods for how risky it considered home loans to be in those areas. Neighborhoods with black and immigrant populations received the worst grades and were redlined, literally redlined, making it harder for people to get access to federally backed loans. Neighborhoods in Atlanta that were redlined decades ago have higher levels of air pollution than any other neighborhoods. Now, that's according to a recent study from the journal Environmental Science and Technology Letters that looked at the legacy of redlining in hundreds of American cities. And those findings are not surprising to our next guest who have studied the issue extensively. Let's welcome Lauren McCullough, an associate professor of epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. I believe you've been on this program before. Also, we're joined by our grad student, uh, Leah Mobotter. She's a second year doctoral student at Rollins. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Let's go back a little bit because uh, we always like to say we want to educate folks here on Closer Look. And let's give our listeners who may not be familiar with the practice of redlining, who wants to take that and give a little history lesson. Yeah, so redlining occurred. It was really a part of the New Deal of the 1930s, um, a way to sort of get America out of sort of financial rut. Um, and it was sanctioned by the federal government um, and banks use this information to decide where to invest their money. Um, and so we had maps drawn for most major US cities. I think there are about 210 in total um, where they literally, like you said, used red lines. So red deemed hazardous communities and areas um, to suggest that these were not areas that would be worthwhile investments. Um, and this is important because we think about redlining um, very closely linked to housing, mm -hmm. but these maps were also used um, for things like parks and grocery stores. So the impact and lasting legacy of redlining can be felt, you know, across a number of different industries. Professor, do we have an idea when it technically ended the pro the practice of redlining now there's a whole nother conversation about whether or not it kind of exists today under right. a, a different term and, and practices but 
for this sake of this conversation, do we know when this technically kind of ended? Yeah, so legally it was outlawed in the 1960s. Um, but as you said, it continues in sort of semi-sanctioned ways, even, even currently. And, you know, we have now things reverse redlining um, that happens. And so it, it, it is illegal, but um, certainly the legacy is still present. For listeners saying, okay, wow, when did researchers start to draw this connection between this discri- discriminatory practice, not only just a redlining, but there could be a lot of others, but redlining, and when did they draw this this correlation between that and exposure to environmental hazards? Or maybe we should back up and cite for people, what environmental hazards are we talking about first? Correct. So I think the term environmental hazards is, is really a broad and all-encompassing term. It, it can be our natural environment, you know, things like air pollution, which we'll discuss a little bit more. Um, but also when we think about environment, we think about the physical environment. So built environments, where are our parks, where are our sidewalks? Um, and so environment is, is huge and has a huge impact on health, uh, particularly, you know, environmental hazards like air pollution and, and um, respiratory diseases. Um, and, and other chronic conditions that we study, particularly in our research group, like cancer. Um, so the connection between the environment and, and health um, really is not new, but I think thinking about it from a broader perspective, thinking about the structural and social impacts mm-hmm. of these policies on health is something that has really recently picked up traction in, in the health literature. Leah, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, the only thing that I wanted to add is that um, there were a lot of theories historically on how redlining may have impacted health, but relatively recently a group named um, the Mapping Inequality Group made this data available for researchers. So we've seen a recent uptick in studies um, of redlining and environmental hazards and redlining on health outcomes. And, and Lauren and, and or Professor and, and Leah, how did you all begin to do research in this? How did all this even begin for you all? Well, our interests really have always been in disparities in cancer outcomes. And as we look at sort of the usual suspects, you know, they, they suggest, you know, biology, um, differences in access and treatments. Um, while those do play a role in, in some of the differences that we see, they don't necessarily explain the the huge gaps, particularly by race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And so our group began to think, you know, there there have to be other things, their neighborhood characteristics, their stressors related to discrimination um, that are not necessarily being captured in the medical literature. Um, And so given that we were aware of, of this policy and this practice, one of the first things we wanted to do was understand, you know, does this practice, does you're living in a historically redlined or contemporary redlined area impact disparities in breast cancer. Um, And and we did indeed see those findings. And I I think that um, in conjunction with other investigators who um, have initially sort of gone down this line of thinking um, really has lent um, credence to this hypothesis. Leah? I became interested because I was interested in the effect of structural inequities on the distribution of environmental hazards. So why certain groups were disproportionately burdened with environmental pollutants. And redlining occurred at a very formative time for the United States um, as far as the development of neighborhoods. So for instance, the US interstate highway system was developed in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. 
but when that took place, redline communities were sort of exploited as the main location for the highways that are in use today. So because it had such a profound effect on neighborhoods, um, that seemed like the most important route to look at as far as um, environmental inequities. Professor, I want to go back to something you talked about. You talked about stressors and you talked about neighborhood character characteristics here. And I imagine we may know those characteristics, but now we talk about in this research what you all have determined. One, okay, these were neighborhoods that were initially redlined. But I imagine also, and you can take this further, we're talking about black and brown communities, perhaps um, economically disadvantaged communities, neighborhoods. Is that what we're saying here? Correct. Um, and red line communities, those communities, you know, graded D, so deemed to be most hazardous, were predominantly um, those where black and brown people lived, um, immigrants lived. Um, and the stressors that come along with living in those types of communities include things that I think are very obvious, you know, access, I think is a, a big issue, but, but also the discrimination that comes along with not being able to move out of those potentially um, hazardous communities, mm -hmm. um, the discrimination that comes along with living in those areas, um, being exposed to those environmental toxicants, all of those things are stressors um, that can manifest them, themselves in, in many ways, including um, disease. And also, is does this research also reveal that when we talk about these stressors and these other characteristics of that these neighborhoods that they all are similar in, I'm curious about in terms of access to perhaps healthy food, access to adequate transportation. What is the, I guess, the, the grade level of the, the, the schools in the neighborhood? All these sort of tentacles tied to these neighborhoods. I imagine you may have, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you may have high unemployment rate. You know, all those characteristics as well And we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've sort of begun by looking at this very upstream um, system because of the fact that we know this historical redlining has impacted everything from education to, you know, accessibility of healthcare to environmental toxicants. Um, all of those things are very closely linked to each other. And so you do see patterns that emerge in these redlined communities. They tend to have higher unemployment, they tend to have lower education, lower household income. Um, but one thing that's important is that as these neighborhoods have changed over time, particularly in Atlanta with um, the amount of gentrification is, that has happened, really understanding how those changes um, impact health outcomes in these communities, I think is a, an ongoing area of research, at least in our group. For our listeners, can you all identify what neighborhoods are an example of this? Yes, we certainly can. By, by combining the Holt maps um, that had the original red line grades and, and looking at more current day census data, we can certainly see those areas, um, particularly in East Atlanta, um, that that have, have changed over time. Mm -hmm. And you can see the demographic shift um, over the years. But I think it's important to understand what those drivers are because historic redlining is not something that we're going to change. It's, it's historic, it's there. And so if we're trying to conceive interventions to improve health outcomes in these populations, we need to understand what are the appropriate interventions um, 
in those neighborhoods. Professor, let me stay with you for a moment because in your research, I understand you've done extensive work on the links between all those social conditions you just talked about, where how and where people live, and cancer. What are those connections and what else did you do you think we need to know about them? And is there someone listening saying, OK, can you all prove that there is a connection here to maybe a, a high percentage of, of cancer rates in these neighborhoods to these social conditions, which also link back to redlining? You know, somebody out there is thinking that y'all know that. Yeah. <laughs> there are always doubters. Um, and, you know, it is a new and active and ongoing area of research, but Thinking about the path of carcinogenesis, so cancer development, um, we know inflammation plays a huge role and, and stress is closely linked to inflammation um, and immune response. And so not only do we think that these neighborhood stressors, financial stressors, economic stressors um, lead to poorer outcomes in cancer, but they also may explain the fact that Black women get more aggressive cancer, breast cancer types to begin with. Um, and so we really are digging into some of the biology um, to, to be able to really explain those causal pathways. Where are y'all getting that information and data from? If you're digging into this biology, where's it coming from? So largely our data on a population level come from uh, our surveillance system. So all cancers are tracked um, through the Georgia Cancer Registry. The biology piece of it, we are largely leveraging our partnership at the Winship Cancer Institute where we're able to get um, tumor samples and being able to use those to assay to look at certain markers of interest. Leah, talk to me about your research in this, because you're looking specifically at the links between redlining, air air pollution, and cancer as well. Let's take this further in terms of the air pollution. What are you finding? Yeah, so I recently um, conducted a study with some colleagues at the Rollins School of Public Health and Dr. McCullough, where I spoke, focused specifically on Georgia. So I looked at redlining in association with three measures that are provided by the EPA. And we found that grade D neighborhoods, so those that are deemed hazardous, had higher respiratory hazards. So those are components of air pollution that are thought specifically to affect respiratory health and higher concentrations of carcinogenic air toxics. So those are contents of the air that are thought to increase cancer risk. So, Leah, are these neighborhoods then, is it, should we surmise that then these neighborhoods are somehow near or in some proximity to some type of factory or some some type of plant that is giving off these toxins? Is that what we should? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, Dr. Robert Bullard, he's typically called the father of environmental justice. Oh, yes. Know him very well from Clark Atlanta (laughs) University days. Yes. Yes. He has done a lot of really, really incredible work in this space and has identified that um, low-income and high-minority neighborhoods are far and wide, um, have a much higher concentration of toxic waste facilities, industrial sites, landfills and are typically closer to freeways and roadways. So while I looked at those air pollutant concentrations, it would would require a bit more research to determine what sources those come from, but it's likely a combination of some of those that I just mentioned. 
If you just join us, I am in conversation with Professor Lauren McCullough, an associate professor of epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Also joined by grad student Leah Mobotter. She's a second year doctoral student at Rollins. And we're talking about the intersection of historical housing discrimination, like redlining and air pollution and other environmental hazards, and what that means for public health. I want to shift for a moment because when you brought up Dr. Bullard, this work is does fall under what we would consider environmental justice work. Absolutely. Um, He brought that term into the mainstream conversation in the 1970s. And um, I've heard him talk about this quite a bit, but he mentions that everyone thought he was totally crazy. Um, And now present day is, um, has made the headlines quite frequently and has reached all the way uh, up to the White House. So President Biden just set forth the first White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council um, that has, I think, about 40 scholars on environmental justice, one of them being Robert Bullard, and that is to um, remediate some of the effects that under-resourced and marginalized communities have faced as far as, as environmental hazards are concerned. We mentioned cancer. We mentioned, uh, you know, some respiratory issues. And I'm, I'm curious, are there other health conditions that researchers like you all can link to redlining specifically? And I, I imagine there could be a number of health problems that are at the root of this. Yeah. <laughs> One study has linked environmental hazards from redlining to asthma. Um, and there have been a handful of studies that have looked at preterm births. Uh, stage at diagnosis, so found that those who lived in redlined communities had a later cancer stage of diagnosis, which is important for their, in terms of their survival. Um, And some studies have looked at the availability of neighborhood amenities that you mentioned, like grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious too, because this is, it's still in in the news. It's hard to believe. I remember hearing about this when I was just a wee person, which of course is lead, obviously, and particularly when you look at some of the older uh, buildings and particularly also too in some of the earlier housing projects. And and where are we with lead? Because WABE just last week ran a story that they're still looking at the effects of lead poisoning to this day in some neighborhoods. And these are the same neighborhoods that you all are researching. Uh, Professor, what do you make of that? Well, I'm going to kick that back over to Leah since she's our environmental person. But I I will say, I I think it's important to think about lead and other environmental hazards. You know, this study reported increased air pollution with halt grade. But one of the things that I think was buried was that even within grade, we still saw racial differences. So everybody at grade D, you know, is more exposed, but Blacks and Hispanics had even higher levels of lead and, and um, exposure to other toxicants. And so I, I think there are some important things there that, that need to be considered. Um, but Leah, where are we with Leah? Um, there is anecdotal evidence that residents that reside in grade neighborhoods have either older homes or uh, lower quality homes and are thus more exposed to lead, but no one has done a study yet on lead or lead lighting. Professor, you talked about East Atlanta, which was definitely a changing neighborhood. But are there other neighborhoods? And I think when we have these conversations, let's be really clear, because I've had a lot of them on this program, when we 
tend to think about those neighborhoods right now that still may be feeling the effect of all these discriminatory practices or let's just be really clear for some folks, racism or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. We think of Southwest Atlanta. We think of the West End. You think of I just heard a report this morning that now the average home price in Vine City is all up almost up to three hundred seventy five thousand dollars. So these neighborhoods are changing. But what are we seeing in terms of environmental issues? Are they does it just magically disappear as these neighborhoods change and for those that have an issue with the G word, gentrification, depending on who you ask, you get a different definition. But do, the, do these environmental hazards change as these neighborhoods become different or change? So that is the key question. And that's something, you know, that Leah and I are working really hard on is to understand how these air toxins change over time as these neighborhoods change or gentrify. Um, and, and hopefully we have an answer soon, but I, I think that's the important question because if they do change, it provides us a, a mechanism for intervention. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also a really good reason why everybody should care about this issue, no matter your, your race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status, because air pollution knows no bounds. It doesn't know that your neighborhood is a higher income neighborhood. And so really understanding these changes over time is really where we're going next. Um, but my gut would say, no, it doesn't just go away. Well, then where are we going next? I mean, are there any solid examples of initiatives or approaches to solving this problem? And solving may not be, maybe we need to use a different word there, at least in an attempt to solve the problem that's we know. I mean, what are other cities doing? Have y'all been able to reveal or find that out? Yeah, I'm not sure if any other cities have really resolve the problem. I I know there are lots of grassroots efforts all around the country um, now that this has really emerged and come to light. Um, But again, figuring out what's the appropriate interventions, um, I I think is where we're all sort of stumbling. Leah? Yeah, the only thing that I wanted to add is that White House um, Advisory Council, one of the initiatives was the Justice 40 initiative, and that is intended to direct about 40% of federal resources for those communities um, to help guide the administration's decisions. Um, another interesting sort of takeaway when things become gentrified or neighborhoods change is that once the income level of a neighborhood changes, their municipal investments also change. Um, and that certainly has an impact on environmental hazards, but I don't know that that has been well characterized in research. I have a listener who wants to know, have you all looked at any correlation between water hazards and redlining of these neighborhoods? Leah? I have not. And I don't know that anyone has, um, but I would expect that we would see a similar pattern that we see with air pollution. So you mentioned White House initiatives, and perhaps this next question may begin to answer that. So this is a, as we say on this program a lot, a holistic approach. This is a problem that has to start from the federal level on down the state, on down the local. Is this something we can legislate our way out of, Professor? You know, resources certainly help. I absolutely believe that. I think my challenge as a scientist and as as a researcher is if you don't know where to put the dollars, the dollars aren't going to make a huge impact. And I think the research will help us understand does put in a park and increasing green space in a previously gentrified area reduce 
their toxins. Mm-hmm. The research isn't there to show that yet. And so while I, I certainly believe that the, the, the dollars from federal on down to local are, are going to help, I do think we need to better understand what are the appropriate interventions. What's an appropriate intervention may not be the same in Atlanta as it is in Detroit. Um, and so that's why this research is so important. Finally, as we wrap up, and I'll start with you, Leah, what's at stake if policymakers don't pay more attention to this problem? And and will these harms continue to be felt in generation after generation? Um, I think yes. So there have been a lot of environmental conservation efforts in the past, but we see that there are still a lot of communities that experience a large burden of environmental pollutants when they only contribute to a small proportion of those. Um, and that's because these conservation efforts haven't been approached with an equity lens. So I think if that doesn't change, that um, we'll keep experiencing proportionate environmental hazards. Professor, I'll give you the last word on that. What's at stake here? No, I echo exactly you know, what Leah said. It's been 70 plus years and we're still feeling the effects and you know, we have a whole generation of, of children who are still living in these neighborhoods. So as they grow, you know, they're still going to be experiencing some of these ill effects and we're going to see chronic disease and obesity and, and all sorts of other things. And so um, it, it, what's at stake is, is really our future generations. Mm. Laura McCullough, an associate professor of epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, also joined by grad student Leah Mobotter. She's a second year doctoral student at Rollins, and we've been discussing the intersection of historical housing discrimination and environmental hazards and what that means for public health. Good conversation. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. 16 years ago this month, 16 years ago, wow, writer John Egerton gave closing remarks at a conference held at Emory University. Now, the conference was called The End of Southern Exceptionalism. And his 1970 book, The Americanization of Dixie, The Southernization of America, well, as he gave the conference's closing remarks, a mind to stay here, he included his summation that many of the political and social conditions he equated in his book Well, he said they were still prevalent in 2006. I I say a little bit in here about what what I thought I was trying to say in uh, in Dixie uh, 32 years ago now. I went back and read uh, some of it, and and I came to the conclusion that that, uh, what I said then I would more or less still say today. Uh, The South has changed. It uh, is still changing. It will continue to change beyond recognition. Uh, The South has bought into the materialism and hedonism of America with a vengeance. It's fully complicit in a global monopoly called America, Inc. Uh, The South is shackled and scarred by its past, indelibly disfigured by slavery, civil war, segregation, which makes it eligible to rise someday with all the other freaks and geeks to inherit the earth because it is written somewhere that the last will be first. And uh, still, uh, I don't know what to make of it, this place. It still uh, it puzzles me a lot. I've, 
I've kind of cobbled together uh, uh, a modestly successful career out of predicting the imminent demise of the South, and all that's kept me in the game is its refusal to die. So, um. <laughs> And we should note Egerton, a Southern native, native, was a supporter of civil rights and advocated a lot for Southern farmers. He died in 2013. He was 78 years old. But the overall theme in his book, in that 1970 book, 1974 book, is now being carried forward in a new book of essays, The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy in the Balance, it's co-authored by Cynthia Tucker, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, formerly with the AJC, many of you all will know, now currently a journalist in residence at the University of South Alabama, and also Fry Gilliard, who's written about the South extensively. He's a former Southern editor at the Charlotte Observer and is currently also a writer in residence at the University of South Alabama. Thank you both for taking the time. Ms. Tucker, it's been years. I first started interview, interviewing oh. you when I was at WCLK. Boy, I tell you, look how far we've come. <laughs> Thank you for having us, Rose. Good to be here. Let's begin with John Egerton, because in that clip we just heard, but for our listeners not familiar with his work, uh, Cynthia Tucker, talk about it a little bit for, for our listeners and, and his work, particularly dealing with the South and, and, and focusing on the South. Well, he was a brilliant Southern journalist uh, who loved the South and always hoped that the South, uh, when it rose, uh, would rose, rise to be a model for the nation um, in terms of equality and justice for all, he always hoped that the South would rise above um, its ugly past, the violence, the racial oppression. Uh, but as he said, uh, the South still puzzled him. Uh, and uh, I think I, I would echo that. The South still puzzles me. And when he ended the book, he said, you know, he had written that it seemed that the South and other parts of the nation um, were exchanging sins, that the South was adopting some of the worst habits of other parts of the nation. Uh, he talks about the materialism, the hedonism, the loss of a sense of place. Uh, and he talks about the sense that the South was spreading its awful history of racism to other parts of the nation. And he ended by saying he didn't know which way this is, was going to go ultimately. Um, and I think my uh, friend Fry Gilliard and I end in the same place. Uh, we're still puzzled by the South and we don't know which way this is gonna go either. We're gonna talk about that in a moment. Uh, Fry Gilliard, just your thoughts on what John Egerton was talking about 1974. You know, John was, uh, was actually I'm happy to say one of my really close friends and mentors, uh, I lived in Nashville for a while and knew him pretty well there. And I, I always thought John, um, in, a, in addition to his, you know, to his warm heart and brilliant mind was also kind of gloomy. Um, he was, he tended to be sort of a, sort of a pessimist. And at the time that he wrote that book in 1974, you know, I thought he was missing some hopeful signs. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had, for example, three New South governors uh, who were making national headlines, uh, one Republican and two Democrats. Uh, Linwood Holton in Virginia was a Republican, Reuben Askew, and then Jimmy Carter in Georgia, Reuben Askew in Florida. And all of them were saying that we had to put racial discrimination behind us. 
And all of them were saying that the South could lead the way in this because we knew from our history maybe more about racism than any other part of the country and knew, therefore, what it might take to overcome it. Um, and I felt personally even uh, more optimistic about that when Jimmy Carter, this peanut farmer from South Georgia, mm -hmm. uh, won the Democratic nomination for president by talking about civil rights and extending the concept of civil rights into a human rights policy at the cornerstone of his, of his foreign policy. Um, so that was always one sort of, I thought, strain in the character, one, one part of the character of the South. We saw it also, of course, in the witness of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, in the work of Congressman John Lewis. Um, and we see it today, I think, in Georgia um, with the work of Stacey Abrams, with uh, the election of Raphael Warnock, uh, with uh, with the uh, election of John Ossoff. So that's the good news. Mm -hmm. The bad news is kind of more obvious, right? I mean, you know, racism is, you know, has, has risen, I think, back to the surface, uh, partly in backlash against President Obama and partly in response to uh, the 45th president of the United States. And... Uh, and the South is very much on on board with that. Par portions are. We're going to dig into that. Oh, my goodness. I got two emails already criticizing y'all. <laughs> One says quit picking on the South. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think it's important before we dig into your book to, for folks to understand through your lens, as I say, the perception of the South, especially post-Civil War. Because it has changed. And you can look at and obviously history shows us when you look at the Democrats during a certain period or not the Democrats of today. So. The perception of the South, and, and I'll stay with you um, for a moment, is it unfair because the South has changed, that we're still talking about how influential the South is for the negative things, uh, Fry? Is, is that still fair to just paint this perception of the South as, with this one brush? Not that you're doing that, but I think folks tend to do that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's uh, it's fair to to paint the South as the with the brush of being the worst part of the country, if that's what people are, are hearing. You know, what what we're trying to say is there there's sort of parallel uh, qualities in the Southern experience and the Southern character, some of which we find very hopeful. Uh, and I was just talking about those. Uh, so I think uh, was intending to do anything but pick on the South when I when I talk about some of the figures that I that I talked about. On the other hand, um, you know, the, the South is very much a part of the of the kind of um, uh, the kind of backlash that um, that we have seen mm -hmm. in the last uh, 15 years in this country. And that as a as a person who's lived all my life in the South, was born in Alabama, went to school in Tennessee, worked in North Carolina, now I'm back in Alabama. You know, it grieves me to see that we're still struggling with some of the same issues. Cynthia, perception of the South, fair? Well, of, of course the South has changed. Um, we, we see the change uh, not just in the major cities, um, where you see, again, as Pry talked about, leadership from people like Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams, 
Uh, if the South hadn't changed, there wouldn't have been so much reverse migration. As you're well aware, Rose, many, many African-Americans uh, are moving back to the South mm -hmm. uh, because they know how much has changed and to help it change more. Uh, on the other hand, I would argue that the South has not done as much as it should have to teach the nation what is wrong with racism uh, and violent oppression of people of color. Uh, one of the things that is happening, not just in the South, but in some other parts of the country, is that we have had waves of in immigration mm -hmm. into uh, smaller cities and rural communities in the South. Uh, Latinos have moved in and revitalized a lot of those uh, communities. In, in many cases, they have been welcomed, but in other cases, they have been dogged by ICE um, and their white neighbors turn them in to ICE when it's convenient, if they're undocumented. So I think the South has an opportunity to show its better self to the nation, uh, but I fear it has not done enough of that. And in the book, in the Southernization of America, and you talk about a story of democracy and the balance, then I want to focus on that latter part, a story of democracy and the balance. Are you saying then, Cynthia, based on everything you just said, democracy is sort of hanging in the balance based on how and if and when the South can through your lens, again, change or, sh or show to the rest of the nation what is, and I'm using kind of paraphrasing, what is good and what is right to do? Is Absolutely. And again, um, uh, Fry said earlier, we're not uh, picking on the South as being the worst part of the country by any means. Uh, but because of its history of slavery, the South has been the epicenter of racism. Uh, it has taught, unfortunately, much of the nation how to be racist and oppressive. It is also true, however, that during the period of Reconstruction, uh, the South very briefly showed the nation what democracy looked like, at least democracy that included all men. Mm -hmm. um, we argue in the book that uh, the United States wasn't a real democracy at all until the civil rights movement here in the South, in which all Americans finally were given the right to vote. And that led to other movements across the nation, the women's rights movement, the mm -hmm. gay rights movement, and more people of color, including Native Americans, began to vote. I happen to think that was a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, there is a substantial minority of whites who took another lesson from the election of President Barack Obama, the first black president. They now see something wrong with a real democracy in which everybody is given the right to vote and to vote easily. Um, and so across the country, uh, including right here in the South, including in Georgia, Rose, as you know, Republican-led state legislatures are busy trying to take voting rights away. In this book, and Fry, I'm going to come to you, in, it's a collection of essays, 
And you all were very particular in certain instances within the last, uh, we could say maybe 10 years, maybe even 15, 20 years, that sort of, I guess for lack of better words, validate what your argument is. And and I love the, the section uh, where you talk about the, the, I'm gonna, the golden escalator. I have it. You can see I have that section <laughs> earmark that Fry, I'll let you take that. Cause if I say it, I'll get emails. <laughs> well, you know, it was, uh, it was not a high point in, in our history, in my view, when Donald Trump descended the golden escalator in 2015 at Trump tower to announce that he was going to run for president. And when he did that, he branded a whole group of people, uh, people from south of our southern border who wanted to come here. Um, he, he branded them as rapists and criminals. Um, and, you know, every group uh, has, I suppose, some rapists and criminals within it. But the statistics uh, are pretty clear that that group has fewer of those than the population of the United States as a whole. And what was clearly happening was that a lot of people were coming to this country uh, looking for a better life, as people have done throughout the history of America. So it really wasn't anything all that unusual. And yeah, we have an immigration system that needs work. I'm not even talking about that. What I am talking about is invoking uh, essentially using the, the issue of immigration to get at the issue of race and to kind of push people aside as the other, people who are not really um, uh, worthy of our respect or our understanding or our welcome uh, within, within our midst. And, you know, that was kind of a stalking horse for, for other things that, uh, that this man did once he became president. I mean, you think of Charlottesville, mm -hmm. uh, you think of uh, his policies regarding Muslims. Um, you know, it, it, there were a lot of echoes there, uh, we think, from an earlier time, and, and that's a sad thing. Um, there was a time, we, we also talk in the book about um, uh, when the great John Lewis died, a person who was as hopeful about America, about the South, as anybody that I ever had the good fortune of meeting. When he died, one of the people who came and spoke at his funeral was former President George W. Bush. And President Bush, in speaking kindly and warmly about John Lewis, even though they didn't agree on everything, um, talked about how he, President Bush, mm -hmm. had signed an extension of the Voting Rights Act. Well, it reminded us that voting rights used to be something that was bipartisan, and now it seems not to be uh, because of, uh, you know, events of the last 10 years or so, and one of our parties um, isn't committed to that. The voice you hear is Fry Gilliard. He is a, he's written extensively about the South. He's in, uh, currently a writer in residence at the University of South Alabama. I'm joined also by co-author Cynthia Tucker. Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, and we're talking about their book, The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy and the Balance. And even though I have this this question from a listener, Cynthia, it's a question I obviously I was going to ask. Why has the South been so influential in terms of politics? And I guess we could go back to post, you know, Civil War or Reconstruction, what have you. But still, through your lens, you said still remains 
such an influence? And then there's another question to follow up I have for you, but Cynthia, take that. Well, I think the South has been influential since the founding of the nation. If you think back, uh, one of the founding fathers who wrote glorious words about uh, the equality of all mankind was Thomas Jefferson. He was a Southerner and he owned slaves. So I, um, one of the reasons that the founders ended up with this god awful two thirds compromise where uh, black people would be counted as partial human beings was because of the Southern slave owners who were there helping to write the constitution. So uh, the South has always had influence. I was hoping that more of the influence would uh, shine through through our wonderful figures such as John Lewis and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, who for a time, I think, were their uh, example was leading the nation in the right direction. Uh, but our 45th president came back, unfortunately, and picked up on the rhetoric of George Wallace um, <laughs> to take the nation in another direction. And Cynthia, I just want to, for, for clarity, because I know sometimes folks hear things and they get all, you know, they send me emails. When you talk <laughs> about then that two thirds, we're talking about also that they counted, they being the government, three fifths of each state slave population. Is that what we're, are you also referring I'm to? I'm sorry. I called it the two thirds. Excuse okay. me. Three fifths. Okay. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure because. Yes. Okay. We weren't counted in any census as full as one person, uh, as whites were. Um, the enslaved population was counted as three-fifths three gotcha. of the population of a state. Okay, and, and Fry, I want to come back over to you to give you a chance to uh, answer that in terms of why the, the South has always, and you heard Cynthia say, listen, this has been, the South has been influential since our founding fathers. You agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think uh, you go forward into history, uh, you know, the South seceded. Uh, and so a civil war ensued and it was the bloodiest period in American history without a close second. Then the question was, how are we going to put the country back together? And of course, the South played a central role in that. And for a while, as Cynthia said, uh, it looked like we might have an inclusive democracy then. We, you had um, African-Americans who had been enslaved embracing um, their rights as citizens as kind of a civic affirmation of their very humanity, I think. And then at the end of Reconstruction, that was snatched away by Jim Crow laws and by segregation laws and, and uh, by disenfranchisement and all of those things. So again, the South uh, was at the center of a national drama uh, that had to do with the, the breadth of American democracy. And then that happened again in the civil rights years when, uh, when Martin Luther King and his movement, uh, you know, centered in the South, but it spread to the country as a whole. Um, and then and then after that, uh, you had the election of Southern presidents like um, like Jimmy Carter, like uh, mm -hmm. Bill Clinton, but also like George W. Bush uh, from Texas. So different 
aspects of, of what it meant to be a Southerner were on display there. But even in the case of George W. Bush, who was much more conservative uh, than Clinton or Carter, and I personally had many issues with his foreign policy, uh, you know, he was a guy that, that in my judgment, was not mm-hmm. a racist um, and, and, you know, understood the value of uh, signing an extension of the Voting Rights Act and those kind of things. Um, so the South has, has continued to play those kind of roles, both positive and negative. And I think in, you know, its, its response to uh, the challenge uh, laid down by Donald Trump, it was important. Um, Trump's campaign really took off when he visited Mobile, Alabama, mm-hmm. where Cynthia and I are. Uh, and 30,000 people turned out to hear him at a local football stadium. Fry, let me, let me get, uh, I hate to interrupt you, I want to get Cynthia Tucker uh, an opportunity to get the last word in this in about 30 seconds. Cynthia, with this book, The Southernization of America, what do you hope the, le- the reader will get out of it? Well, I hope the reader will begin to think about um, some discrete episodes in our nation's recent history and see them in a different way, begin to connect the dots um, and help to understand how we got where we are, but also how we can move forward in a much more positive direction and continue the journey toward a more perfect union. The book is The Southernization of America, A Story of Democracy in the Balance. The authors, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Cynthia Tucker, and also Fry Gilliard, both currently writer in residence at the University of South Alabama. Good conversation. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you Rose. for having us, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. I'm sorry, y'all. Y'all had a lot of questions. Just couldn't get to them, but we'll bring them back. Our Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed the end of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. So subscribe to Closer Look as well as in wherever you like to get your podcast, because we'll be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.